you turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, we continue our study in the book of Acts, verses 1 through 22 will be our scripture reading this morning. Book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 22. This passage of text describes the end of Paul's second missionary journey when he goes to Corinth and then with a time at Ephesus, the end of this chapter. He has just left Athens in which he was summarily dismissed with sneers and with others who thought about it, but was a difficult ministry, and he comes to Corinth, chapter 18, verse 1. The scriptures read, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I, will, I have many people in the city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words, when names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. In Sancria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. 
They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, which speaks to us truth and guides us. Lord, I pray that you would illumine our minds, grant to us understanding, and help us, O God, to know you more. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Well, these days, it is commencement time, and commencement speeches are flowing very frequently, as many are graduating. In 2014, Admiral William H. McRaven gave a commencement speech at the University of Texas in Austin to the class of 2014. He is a 36-year Navy SEAL veteran. And his talk was entitled, 10 Lessons to Change the World. One of the lessons he gave was this, quote, Every day... During training, Navy SEAL training, you were challenged with multiple physical events, long runs, long swims, obstacle courses, hours of calisthenics, something designed to test your mettle. Every event had standards, times you had to meet. If you failed to meet those standards, your name was posted on a list. At the end of the day, those on the list were invited to a circus. A circus was two hours of additional calisthenics designed to wear you down, break your spirit, to force you to quit. No one wanted a circus. A circus meant that for that day you didn't measure up. A circus meant more fatigue, and more fatigue meant that the following day would be more difficult, and more circuses were likely. But at some time during SEAL training, everyone, everyone made the circus list. But an interesting thing happened to those who were constantly on the list. Over time, those students who did two extra hours of calisthenics got stronger and stronger. The pain of the circuses built inner strength, built physical resiliency, life, he said, is filled with circuses. You will fail. You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times it will test you to your very core. But if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circuses." Unquote. Well, if there was any missionary who was tested over and over and over again, it would be the Apostle Paul. His second missionary journey has been extremely difficult. From a human standpoint, extremely discouraging. It would seem as if he went into every single city and it would be like facing a circus from one city to the next city. One would think that after God himself directed Paul, 
through a Macedonian vision, he would have a much easier time. After all, when difficult circumstances happen, we begin to question. We're apt to think, well, is this really God's will? Did I make the right choice? Why is it so difficult? But the truth of the matter is, following God's will can often lead to an even more difficult road. There may be greater spiritual fruit that is hard to see, but sometimes following God is simply hard and full of fear and anxiety, and it can be discouraging. And discouragement and fear were not foreign to the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary perhaps there in the New Testament, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, in every single city that Paul went to. Even though some responded, oftentimes the majority rose up in opposition to the gospel. They rejected him, they threatened him, they beat him, they put him in jail. All of these things happened to him throughout the cities he went to. It was not a smooth ministry. It was not a booming ministry by any means. You may recall after he had the Macedonian vision and he went to Macedonia, he went and found a group of ladies outside of Philippi and many of them came to know Christ along with Lydia and became the first church and the first uh, convert in all of Europe. But there in Philippi, there was also another female that followed him around along with Silas and he cast the demon out of that girl and after he cast the demon out of that girl, the owners of that girl who were making a great profit off of her fortune-telling became angry and drew up a mob against him, dragged him in front of the city, accused him falsely, beat him, and he, has, he was thrown into prison. God used that situation to save the Philippian jailer, but soon afterwards he was asked to leave the city. Then in the second city of Thessalonica, there was a mob that came after him. And even after he went from Thessalonica to Berea, the Thessalonian mob heard that he was in Berea and followed him down there, forcing him to leave Berea as well. And then he went on to Athens, of which there were thousands of gods, thousands of temples to false gods. And they sneered at him and they summarily dismissed him, though a few came to know Christ. When Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. So it's no wonder when Paul came to Corinth, he writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 2, uh, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. The Apostle Paul, if you can imagine, came to Corinth with fear and trembling, and here he was, having been beaten and rejected in the cities that he had gone to. Trouble seemed to always follow Paul. A mob would always seem to arise. He would preach the gospel. There would be a few who would come, but the vast majority of people rejected the message, became enraged, and he would be driven out of the city. When we feel weak, we feel afraid, well, God does remind us and encourage us through his word that we can be bold. And here in this passage today, God reminds this apostle, this missionary of a number of things through a number of ways of his goodness and grace, even as he enters into Corinth in weakness in fear and trembling. God provides for him friends in the ministry. God provides him encouragement in difficult circumstances. God provides him some that are open, an open response by the time he gets to Ephesus. Having 
these things emboldens us when we face difficulties, when ministry is discouraging, when we reach out to those we love is discouraging, when we face people who don't know Christ and they turn in anger and respond in a way that is not so friendly, well, we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged. The first thing that God did for the Apostle Paul was to give him friends in the ministry who would serve alongside of him, friends in the ministry. He left Athens, he went to Corinth, verse 1 tells us, about 50 miles away. Corinth had replaced Athens as the leading political and commercial center in all of Greece. It was about 20 times the size of Athens, strategically located it was, there on the peninsula between two port cities. It was strategically located. One port led to the Saronic Gulf out to the Aegean Sea. And then the other port on the other side of that peninsula led to the Adriatic Sea through the Gulf of Corinth. And there was, there was the city of Corinth in the center of all of that. And so people who were sailors, rather than sail 200 miles around the peninsula to the other ports, well, smaller ships they would take and they would place upon these wooden logs by which they would roll across the land about three and a half miles from one port on one side to the other port on the other side of this peninsula. With Corinth standing in the center, there would be a lot of traffic, a lot of commercial traffic which would go through. So you would have people who were government officials, people who would be traveling through, sailors, you would have businessmen. It was a largely unsettled city, but a high population of individuals who would be there temporarily and then move on. Be like an economic boomtown of that time. And there was a lot of, not only traffic, but a lot of idolatry as well. Corinth was the center of the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love. And out of that temple, in the evenings especially, a thousand temple prostitutes would come down into the city and ply their trade among the people and would give the city a terrible reputation. Since the 5th century BC, the term to Corinthianize simply meant to be sexually immoral. That's what Corinthianize would be as a term they would give to people or, or places. Paul was in effect then walking into the city that really was a cesspool of immorality. And as you can read in the books of First and Second Corinthians, that type of atmosphere also infected the church as the people tried to come to a knowledge of Christ or live in a way that would please the Lord. And there were many problems in the church at Corinth. But here in the city of Corinth, Paul met two individuals, Aquila and Priscilla, who had become important friends later on in the ministry to him. Aquila's name meant eagle. Priscilla was another form of the name Prisca. And that Prisca, that name was the name of one of the great families of Rome. And it is thought that she was of one of those great families because what is unusual is that the, the names Aquila and Priscilla appear six times. And out of the six times in the New Testament that it appears, Priscilla or Prisca's name appears first perhaps suggesting that she was of an important individual in the family, family that was in Rome, or perhaps that she had a tremendous influence or a tremendous role in the church. 
Later on, Paul would state about this couple in Romans 16, verse 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks. They place their life on the line for the sake of the Apostle Paul. And so they would later become wonderful friends and ministers, giving and perhaps risking their own lives, it says, for the Apostle Paul. And they would later on also minister to Apollos, showing him a greater understanding of the word more accurately in chapter 18, verse 26. So here they met Paul in Corinth. They had to leave Rome because it says the Emperor Claudius had banned Jews from Rome because some Jews were instigating riots, likely over Jesus. That's what some of them, one historian says. But Claudius had banned Jews from Rome, and so they came to Corinth. And there was a commonality between he and them. They were tent makers. They were of the same trade. Now, there's some debate as to what this term means, where it means literally a worker of leather and so tents, some, some of them were made of uh, leather. Uh, they perhaps had other jobs that they would do in leather or tanning. Perhaps that's what Paul did here. But other, other than that, we simply know that Paul had a secular profession, doing work outside of the ministry to support himself. And what he was doing in addition was ministering. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks meaning that he tried to persuade them. He had a dialogue. That's what that word means. A dialogue in which not only did he share the gospel, but perhaps answered questions, perhaps discussed with them, then trying to persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah who had come. He had gone to the synagogue like he had before, answering questions and making tents and working a secular profession during the day. It's not unusual for pastors and missionaries to be tent makers or bivocational. According to Ed Stetzner, Vice President of Research and Statistics at Lifeway Christian Resources, statistics reveal, he says, that more of our pastors, and I think he's referring to particularly Southern Baptists, are becoming bivocational for a number of different reasons. Some are due to the economy, low attendance, or to retain another career if they're ever terminated in between churches, or leave the ministry. He writes, this may be wise because 50% of ministers leave the ministry in the first five years and only one out of 10 ministers will retire as a minister. According to a USA Today article that was written in 2010, quote, about three quarters of Southern Baptist churches draw fewer than 100 people on a Sunday morning. That means they often can't afford to pay a preacher a full-time salary. So about half of Southern Baptist churches nationwide and two-thirds in Tennessee rely on bivocational mission ministers, unquote. And on the mission field, many missionaries are bivocational, especially those in restricted access countries, those that have restrictions upon uh, perhaps proselytizing and sharing the gospel. There are certain benefits that come with working in a secular profession. I remember really enjoying as I was bivocational in the first number of years of ministry, bivocational, having the opportunity to reach others and talk with others about the faith and, and interact with people who didn't know the Lord, understand what they were going through. And, and when I worked for several, uh, several companies, but it does take time away 
from one's primary focus, which is demonstrated by the Apostle Paul here in verse 5. One's primary purpose, when, Paul, when Silas and Timothy, it says in verse 5, came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. He devoted himself to the Word and to evangelism. When they came, his charge even to Timothy when he penned his very last letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 was that he said to him, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That was his primary call, to minister the word, to reach the lost in evangelism. And Silas and Timothy's presence, I'm sure, was not only encouraging, but 2 Corinthians, as well as Philippians 4, tells us that it may have been that they brought along an offering from the Philippians as well. And this may have been enough for, to support him, such that he didn't need to work in, in his secular profession as a tent maker. But of all the things that God has granted to us, especially us as a church family, is the wonderful opportunity to serve the Lord with friends, friends in the ministry. As we serve together, others are serving, and when everyone does their part in the body of Christ, not only does the body of Christ function as it ought to, but the encouragement we see from not being alone in the ministry, but serving with others, is the encouragement of friends. Their encouragement that they give simply by being there, the encouragement that they give verbally, they see what God is doing. It is good to be, good to have friends who serve alongside of you in the ministry. And that is the joy that we have here. Everything when we see a church work day to what happens after church today, all of the individuals who serve and they're doing a part in serving the Lord and the body of Christ contributes to our encouragement as God has granted to us friends. Number two, what God does for Paul is he encourages him in difficult circumstances and he continues to save people. Well, what happened in Corinth was this in verse 6. When they had resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Well, they re resisted, they blasphemed, and he shook out his garments. That was a typical Jewish response to reject or to repudiate someone or something else. When Gentiles would be in a particular land and Jews would pass through, they would often shake the dust off their feet, the Jews would, showing that they wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles. And so here in the same manner, he shook out his garments, in effect responding to them, rejecting, rejecting their response and absolving himself of anything to do with them. He was, in effect, following Jesus' instruction in Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearl before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And now he was going to go to the Gentiles. And we see here in three particular ways God encouraged Paul during this difficult ministry. Three particular ways. And the first way is that God continues to save people. God continues to save people. Verse 7, he left there 
after shaking out his garments, rejecting, repudiating them, went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and were baptized. Crispus was perhaps a prominent convert. He's a leader of a synagogue. It must have been big news for the Jews to hear that the leader of their synagogue had turned to Christ. And not only him, but the whole household, his whole household, and many of the Gentile Corinthians had turned to Christ. An encouragement to Paul after facing the rejection and the blasphemy of the Jews. Here was a prominent Jew and many Gentiles who would come to Christ. And that ought to be an encouragement. God continues to save people. The fact is, you will not always be rejected. As, as we share the gospel, it won't always be rejected. Despite discouraging ministry, God will continue to save his people. William Carey served for seven years as a missionary laborer in India before his very first convert. Adoniram Judson, a missionary in Africa, spent 12 years serving there, often rejected, but, well, God saved 18 people to Christ in that 12 years. It was a hard ground that they had to till, and as they continued to share, though, God would bring great fruit out of their planting of the seeds of the gospel, and thousands have come to Christ since that time. Thousands have come to Christ, and their own stories and their own testimonies have been such an encouragement to many missionaries over the years, as William Carey has been considered the father of modern missions. It may take time. Many times we may have rejection after rejection after rejection, but we continue to sow the seeds, and people may come to know Christ later on. You never know. A hundred years ago, it seems, it was so very, very difficult in his book, Witnessing Essentials, Dan Meyer lists some encouraging statistics. He writes that in 1900, Korea had no Protestant church. Today, there are over 7,000 churches in just the city of Seoul, South Korea. By the end of the 19th century, the southern portion of Africa was only 3% Christian. Today, 63% of the population professes Christianity. In India, 14 million of the 140 million members of the untouchable caste have come, become Christians. And continuing on, in China it is estimated that there are now more self-avowed disciples of Jesus than members of the Communist Party. And even the most conservative estimates of what God is doing in China suggest they'll have more Christians than any other country in the world. God continues to save people. God continues to use you and I to share the gospel and to sow the seeds, and God will use that in his time to draw his people to himself. Knowing Paul's fear and discouragement as he wrote to the Corinthians when he first came to them, they was afraid that he was discouraged. God encourages him by bringing him friends. God encourages him by the salvation of some. And God encourages him by his promises, his promises which will prevail. Verse 9, the Lord said to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. 
For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, Paul was afraid. Uh, He was afraid. That's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians when he wrote to them. But even here, the Lord knew he was afraid. He says, do not be afraid any longer. I'm sure he thought about when he was attacked, when he was beaten, when he was imprisoned. I'm sure he thought about the many mobs that have come after him in city after city, how people would respond in anger and respond by accusing him falsely. And fear of that type can be paralyzing. But the Lord's encouragement was to go on speaking, to go on speaking and do not be silent. He was not to be afraid, not to be silent about the good news. Why? Number one, the Lord says, for I am with you. I am with you. God's promise of his presence has always been an encouragement to his people. In the Old Testament, when Joshua took over when Moses had died. He had taken over the leadership of the people of Israel and he was about to lead them into the promised land. In Joshua chapter 1, God encourages Joshua many times. Verse 6 of chapter 1, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. He says to him, be careful to do it according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The presence of God and his reminder that he is with us is to be an encouragement. He promised that in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 20, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he promised that his Holy Spirit would be with his people. In John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And for us as a Christian, God is always with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The Spirit of God is with us forever. And though we may feel alone, though we may feel like we're by ourselves, God does not abandon his own children. Secondly, he encourages Paul by saying, no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. God has his people. We're not alone in the work that we do when we're ministering. God has not only granted to us friends, but God has other people who are doing things in other areas that we may not know of. But we may feel alone, much like Elijah felt in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 14, after he had run from Jezebel and he had run and the prophets of Baal, that whole scene there, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, Elijah says, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one. And they seek my life to take it away. And God says to him in verse 18 of chapter 19, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
7,000, Elijah, in addition to you. There are others. You may not know, you may not see, but there are others. God has his people, and we are not alone. Paul was to be encouraged. Paul was to be encouraged to go on, quote, go on speaking and do not be a silent. Why? Because God is with him and God has his people. And Paul, we write later, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Sometimes we can be so afraid of the response of others, the rejection of others, especially when someone becomes angry or they outrightly are offended. And we want the approval of others so much so that, well, we may not share hardly or if ever, or even let others know that we're a Christian. That's not to be how we are to be. We're to be bold and to take heart be of good courage and to share our faith as God grants to us opportunity and not to be afraid because God is with us and the Holy Spirit helps us. That's what Paul continued to do. He continued to do that and he ended up staying in Corinth for about 18 months from AD 50 to AD 52, which is based upon Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. There he ministered for the next 18 months in Corinth helping them, teaching them, encouraging them. And while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, this is what the Jews decided to do. Well, they still gave him trouble even though they didn't physically hurt him. We can trust that God controls governing leaders. God controls governing leaders. Verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Now, this time they didn't bring in a mob that was going to beat him up, but here's what their plan was. They said, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. What they tried to do was they tried to politically stop the spread of Paul's evangelism. On this occasion, you see his Jewish opponents come, and instead of stirring up this, this type of mob that would end up throwing him in prison, they decided perhaps they could do it politically, and it would have greater ramifications. Because during that time, the Roman, the Roman proconsul of Caia had a lot of power. His jurisdiction was great. Unlike Thessalonica, where they brought him before the civic magistrates, the civic magistrates would have local authority, and of course, whatever they determined, they would uh, have applied to those in Thessalonica. But the proconsul had greater, if, greater authority, greater weight. A Roman governor would not only be effective within this province, but his edict would be used as a precedent for other governors in other provinces. And so if the proconsul of Achaia here, Gallio, had pronounced some judgment that would be unfavorable to Paul, it would not just be here in Corinth, it would not only be in Achaia, but it would be in other provinces as well, hampering the gospel. So you can imagine it would be something like going to the state supreme court as opposed to some local district court here in King County. The jurisdiction would be made more wide. And so the Jews attempted to bring Paul here and accuse him. This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law, contrary to Roman law. Well, you might know Gallio because uh, 
He was the brother of Seneca. You might know of Seneca. Seneca was a Stoic philosopher that was well-known. And here, Gallio was his brother. After they accused him, Paul was about to speak. But Gallio was very sharp, and he said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names about your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. In other words, Gallio made a quick summary judgment. This was about the nuances of the Jewish scriptures, an internal matter, an internal issue, not one that was moral or criminal in nature. This was about their own squabble among Judaism, and so he dismissed the case even before Paul needed to make a defense. Paul could have very well made a very clear defense. He, was a very, he had a very capable mind. It was very sharp at argumentation. But he didn't need to, because God would turn the heart of this proconsul in Paul's favor. What an encouragement that must have been to the Apostle Paul. What an encouragement it is to know that even political leaders are under God's control. Even today, when it says that Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wishes. Well, this upset the Jews. They took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. They began beating him. Gallio didn't pay attention. He wasn't concerned about that. But the gospel would continue to march on because God is in control even of political leaders. So granted, God grants Paul encouragement by providing him friends in the ministry, by saving individuals and showing that he continues to save by encouraging Paul to say, you continue to speak and be bold because why? I am with you and there are others. You are not alone. And even in this, I'll protect you. And he does so by moving in the heart of Gallio. And lastly, he encourages Paul, this discouraged ministry, by providing him continued openness in the heart of those he would preach to. Verse 18. Having remained many days longer, he took, out, took leave of the brethren, set out for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And in Sancria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And this particular vow, there's a debate whether or not this is a Nazarite vow or not. It very well could have been a Nazarite vow, even though there is a stipulation about Nazarite vows which are taken outside of the land of Judea, because outside of the holy land, if a vow were taken in another country... We require that you go back to Judea to stay for 30 days, after which it would be cut off and offered in the temple, your hair. It could have been a private vow, perhaps, of thanksgiving, but that could be why he left Ephesus shortly there. He didn't stay with them. Perhaps he was on his way to Judea. Others say it might not be a Nazarite vow. It might be a personal vow of some type. But whatever it was, it was a vow that he took, his, took, took his faith, his vows seriously, then he came to Ephesus. He left them there. And he himself entered the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews, and they asked him to stay. And he took leave of them, saying, I will return to you if God wills. God still has those who are open to him, just like in Ephesus. They wanted him to stay. They wanted him, perhaps, to teach them more, to explain to them more. He chose he had to go for whatever reason. Maybe it, again, was perhaps because of this vow. 
but they didn't mistreat him there. I'm not sure. I'm sure that that was an encouragement to Paul, the last city before he returns once again to Antioch, his home base there in Asia Minor. But the fact of the matter is when serving the Lord in the ministry, things can be very discouraging. Things can be very difficult. Even following God in our own lives, we may choose to follow the Lord and make decisions and it may lead us upon a path that may be very challenging, very difficult. Sometimes it is very fearful. We may be afraid of what the future holds. Yet God has called us to be faithful. God grants to us friends. He calls us to be bold because He'll be with us. He calls us to continue on despite our difficulties because there are others that are doing the same thing around the world. We can be encouraged that we're not the only ones who are in this situation. And God continues to open the hearts of people to respond to the message of the gospel. Despite how things may look on the outside. There's a story I'd like to close with and related to an author and a pastor whose name was Philip Johnson. He was ordained in 1969. And he had received the call to serve one large church and ten smaller churches in an area off the northern coast of Newfoundland, Canada. And on the first day of his new circuit ministry, because when you're ministering in a number of churches, you would minister to the large church, and then you would travel to minister to the other ten churches on this circuit, that's why they'd call it. He learned that in order to get to one of the smallest churches, he would have to travel 40 miles by snowmobile to a tiny village. And so when he arrived at this small church, only one person showed up for worship. He's a fisherman who had traveled about 20 miles to get there. He initially thought to himself, well, there's just one person. I'll just say a prayer and we'll call it a day. But then he realized that together he and the fisherman had already logged 60 miles of travel and 60 more miles to return home, 40 for him on a snowmobile, 20 more for this fisherman. So with that in mind, he decided to conduct the whole service as if there were a few hundred worshipers there that day. And they did it all. They did the hymns, the readings, the prayers, the sermon. They did the Lord's Supper, and he closed with a benediction. And it was during that sermon that Johnson wondered why in the world did he bother. The fisherman never looked up when, when he greeted the fisherman at the door, and he thanked him for coming this one person, he received a pleasant surprise. The fisherman said, quote, Reverend, I've been thinking about becoming a Christian for about 30 odd years, and today's the day, unquote. 40 miles, 60 miles, don't be afraid of the circuses that will come or the discouragement because of numbers or how people respond because through those circuses, God builds us up and he encourages us through other people. And he still brings people to the Savior. And he calls us, just like Paul, I believe, to go on speaking and do not be silent. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for the privilege of knowing you. And God, we pray that you would help us to see people through your eyes, that there are many who need you, 
What an opportunity and what a blessing it is to share of who you are and to speak of the greatness of who you are, the greatness of your Son and the wonder of salvation, the joy that we have because you have saved us. And so God, I pray that we might make the most of every opportunity, that we might be encouraged, O oh God, that you are with us. We might be encouraged, O oh God, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that we might be encouraged, O oh God, that even in the midst of difficulties, you bring people that we can call friends, that we can be encouraged, knowing that others are going through similar difficulties, if not even worse. So God, may our eyes turn outward and not inward, being encouraged, Father, by the truth of your word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.